SEP Fanfic Readings presents Osculum Enum by My Delphi. Chapter 7 Seventh Year, Part 1. The polyjuice potion tasted just as foul as it had when Hermione had brewed it in second year. Still, she swallowed it with a grimace and a small shudder. Almost immediately, she could feel her body begin to change. Only this time, it worked, and she wasn't developing feline features. Instead, her eyesight gradually worsened until she could feel herself squint to combat it. Merlin, Harry, your eyesight really is horrible, she noted and briefly wondered if there was some kind of cure for bad eyesight in the wizarding world. If not, that was a dire oversight, because after wearing glasses for less than ten seconds, they already irritated her. Around her, a group of identical Harrys in various states of undress seemed to agree, because they fiddled with their glasses or stumbled as they adjusted to their new height and limbs. As she slipped into wide jeans and a baggy shirt, she did her very best to ignore the intricacies of the male body that she now temporarily called her own. Under the careful instructions of Moody, and privately disagreeing with the fact that Harry would be riding with Hagrid and Hedwig's cage, she climbed onto the still, invisible Thestral and wrapped her arms around Kingsley Shacklebolt, who gave her arm a comforting squeeze. He knew about her dislike of flying, but then again, who didn't? Hermione had hoped that she wouldn't find herself on the back of a Thestral again after the ordeal in fifth year, but here she was. At least nobody expected her to ride a broom. The brightest witch of her age or not, outmaneuvering the Death Eaters that were most likely waiting for them wasn't something she would get an outstanding in. "'Ready?' Shacklebolt asked her quietly, and she nodded against his back, stifling a yelp as the ground disappeared with a sudden jerk. And then there was a high-pitched whinny and the sound of wings beating through the air as they climbed through the air. Hermione forced herself to take a deep, regular breath so as not to panic. Whether it was about flying on an invisible horse, or because her friends were in terrible danger, she wasn't quite sure. And she didn't have the time to figure it out, because suddenly they flew through a dark cloud and all hell broke loose. Death Eaters, swarms of them, like angry hornets, were racing through the clouds. To her left, she saw a Harry on a broom evade an onslaught of spells, as he had no less than four Death Eaters on his tail. To her right, she heard the shouting of incantations that carried a darkness with them that was almost palpable. Hold on tight, Shacklebolt suddenly ordered, and the Thestral dove left, just in time for a flicker of blue to pass over their heads. They had been spotted. Her fingers clenched tightly around her wand, and as the next flash of lightning came, she threw up a shield just in time. The spell bounced off, striking one of the masked Death Eaters. He shouted and then went lax, slinking to the side and off his broom. As he fell, the mask and spell hiding his identity slipped away, just as he turned around. Hermione's heart stopped as she saw a flash of bright blonde hair, and then he disappeared into the dark, falling towards the ground as the unforgiving force of gravity claimed his body. No. No, no, no. It wasn't him. It wasn't. He wasn't here, surely he wasn't. But why wouldn't he be? A small voice whispered in the back of her head. He's a skilled flyer and Voldemort has no qualms about sending children into battle. No, Hermione forced herself to think rationally. If Draco had been there, he wouldn't have used offensive spells. Not him. Despite everything that had happened, Hermione was convinced that he wouldn't do that. A flash of green violently brought her back to the present. A dark chill raced down her spine as she felt the coldness of it in the air. And then there was Moody, and Hermione could do nothing but stare at him wide-eyed, as the bolts of green hit him square in the chest. 
She didn't have to hear the incantation to know what it did. His doppelganger had taught them about the unforgivable curses and how they worked. And as his eyes grew vacant, Hermione felt another piece of herself break. And suddenly, something was obstructing her view of the ground, and she wasn't floating any more. Dark, taut skin stretched over an almost skeletal body, with wings resembling that of a dragon. Thin skin connecting fragile bones, but strong enough to carry them through the thunderstorm. She swallowed down the pain of what it meant to be able to see the Thestrals, knowing that she should have expected it. Frankly, it was a surprise that she hadn't been able to see them before, not after everything that they had gone through. But before she could think about Moody's death, never mind shed a tear, there was a whisper in the air, a darkness that felt like a chill slowly crawling through her veins until it settled in her heart. The scent of ozone filled the air, followed by a wave of magic so strong that Hermione felt as if she couldn't breathe. And there he was. But rather than sitting on a broom, he was moving through the air as if he was smoke, gliding on the wind and diving through the clouds as if it was one of the easiest spells to master. And yet no one else had been able to accomplish it, and not for lack of trying. And for a brief, terrifying moment, Hermione felt awe. Because after all these years, the beauty and wonder of magic still made her fall in love with it even more. She yearned to know as much as possible, learn the most difficult and hidden spells, as long as they weren't too dark. Then that awe, and a hint of admiration that she would deny for the rest of her life, was replaced by fury. Because how dare he abuse the wondrous gift that he had been bestowed upon him? How dare he use it to destroy the world, rather than make it a better place? The sheer unfairness, that someone like him had been granted an understanding and control over magic that she could only dream of, made her want to scream. And it never got to that, because suddenly Voldemort turned his head, and his red eyes met hers. The calculated gleam in them as they roamed over her was more terrifying than her encounter with his pet basilisk, or facing Dolohoff in the D.O.M., or coming face to face with a raging werewolf. Hermione watched as he raised his wand and pointed it at her, but then something was brushing her mind, an intruding force delving just deep enough to identify her. It would have been almost pleasant had she not known what it was and who administered it. Legilimency. Voldemort is the most skilled legilimens known to date. Panic clawed at her, but before she could think about how she shouldn't think about Draco, Voldemort's presence was already gone, because something else had stirred his attention. A flash of fire, a blazing trail as Hagrid's motorbike disappeared into the distance. I knew it, Hermione thought bitterly as Voldemort melted into the dark, a trail of black smoke the only indication that he was now following his new target, the right one this time. He knows, she shouted, so Shacklebolt would hear her over the sounds of the battle, the storm and the swooshing wings. She could feel him curse rather than hear it, and then he shot a flare from the tip of his wand a sliver of white that shot high in the air before exploding into a bizarrely beautiful array of fireworks. It was the signal that fighting would be futile and that they needed to get to safety. He didn't wait to see if the others were heeding his command, and just like they had agreed upon during the briefing before. The Thestral dove right and away from the raging battle, and Hermione felt a pang of guilt at the relief she felt, the relief that she wouldn't have to watch any of those she considered friends die— Moody was already a devastating loss and a harsh blow to the Order. The dark clouds hid them well, and they quickly shook the three Death Eaters that had followed them, but Hermione was still afraid. 
Voldemort was after Harry. Surely he would have caught up to him already, and for all she knew, her best friend could already be dead. A sudden shockwave of magic almost threw her off the Thestral's back, had it not been for her holding on to Shacklebolt for dear life. It was a wave of fury and anger, and then there was a loud noise, almost like an explosion, and Hermione knew. Voldemort had missed his target. Harry was safe. Knowing that Harry was safe didn't stop her from throwing herself at him the moment she saw him at the burrow. He looked worse for wear, tears streaking his face as he muttered something about Hedwig, and Hermione promptly hugged him again, pressing a kiss to his damp temple. And then Ron appeared, and she hugged him too. And then there was George, and he was bleeding profusely from a wound on the side of his head. Hermione hurried after the small crowd, carrying him inside, her heart beating out of her chest. It was Snape. George is lucky he's still alive. Remus mumbled under his breath, and Hermione bit the inside of her cheek, hard enough for it to bleed as she tried to keep her face passive. She felt nauseous, whether it was from the coppery tang of blood on her tongue, or from the knowledge that Snape had been present and hunted them, she didn't know. Don't think about it, don't think about it, she repeated almost like a mantra, one that she'd used almost daily, so she wouldn't break down until she was safely hidden in her bed. It wasn't any different now, as she repeated it in her head until the rest of the Order members had returned, until they had noted down the casualties. Moody, Hedwig, and George's ear, until those hurt had been treated, and Molly Weasley had distributed food despite nobody having much of an appetite until the first ones had said their quiet goodbyes, and Hermione excused herself as well. She repeated it while she and Ginny got ready for bed in the room they shared repeated it while leafing through the well-read book and humming at appropriate times to give the impression that she was listening to Ginny's low chatter. Chatter that Ginny undoubtedly used to keep her mind off the fact that she had almost lost her brother tonight. She repeated it until the small, glowing orb on her bedside table was the only remaining light source, and Ginny's breaths had evened out. Then Hermione broke down. She cast a silencing spell before she pulled her blanket over her head, sobbing into her pillow, it was too much. It was all too much. The vacant expression in her parents' eyes after she had obliviated them. The lack of recognition as she lingered at the airport where they brushed past her without a second glance, eager to start their new lives in Australia. The emptiness of Moody's eyes as the unforgivable hit him, his body falling towards the ground. The body of the unknown Death Eater with the crown of bright hair, who had been hit by the spell that her shield had deflected. Did that mean that she had been the one to kill him? Or were those sentiments that she couldn't allow herself to think about during war? Had he died, or was the loyalty between Death Eaters far enough that someone had saved him? Hermione cried until her tears had dried up, surprised she even had some left. She had been crying every night, for weeks now, if not months, either waking up with damp cheeks and swollen eyes, or laying awake and hiding them behind her pillow to not worry others. Only when the sobs had subsided did she finish her nighttime routine. She slipped out of bed and darted to her trunk and opened it quietly, mindful of the creaky hinges. Glancing over her shoulder at Ginny, she ensured that her friend was fast asleep before she moved her schoolbooks aside to reveal a small box. It opened after she had whispered the spell to unlock it, allowing her to take out the dark velvet bag. It clinked quietly as she reached inside, procuring a glittering vial. It housed countless of them, far more than it should, an intricate extension charm that went far beyond what one would learn at Hogwarts, far beyond what most witches and wizards ever learned and heavily restricted by the Ministry. 
a spell that she had easily deconstructed and then applied on a small beaded bag. Hermione used the tip of her wand so she had enough light to inspect the vial. It was carefully labeled, with spindly handwriting, and after making sure that she hadn't miscounted, she brought it to her lips and downed it quickly. The taste of honeysuckle lingered on her tongue as she shrunk the empty vial and put it in a separate bag that was already filled with countless others. Then she put the velvet bag back into the box and locked it up again, hiding it underneath her books before closing the trunk. She slipped into bed, exhaling quietly as the potion eased the strain on her heart, only for it to be replaced by guilt. Should she be taking the potions? After what Snape had done to George, he had made his alliance clear, attacking a Harry Potter double, a member of the Order, and he had killed Dumbledore. And yet, something felt off about it. If he had secretly been on Voldemort's side the entire time, then why had he supplied her with potions before his betrayal? Enough potions to last her for more than a year, as well as carefully penned instructions on how to brew them herself, including where to find and gather the ingredients. Why had he insisted that she stay away from Draco? There were muggle-born witches before you who were too close to wizards they shouldn't have associated with, and I will not stand by and watch the same fate befall you. How could he say that, if he believed in Voldemort's cause? How could he agree with the concept of blood purity and consider her unworthy of magic, when he had gone out of his way to ensure that her health wouldn't suffer under the remaining traces of Dolohoff's curse? Why would he have given Draco the bag filled with the potions for her? Or was it simply the obligation he had felt as a professor? Hermione fell asleep trying to solve the riddle that was her former professor, her fingers stroking over the bracelet still adorning her left wrist. It kept her mind off the faceless Death Eater with strikingly blonde hair. Planning a wedding while preparing to hunt down horcruxes and sitting down to read Albus Dumbledore's last will felt bizarre. Hermione hadn't expected to inherit anything from the former headmaster, but then she was presented with a book titled The Tales of Beetle the Bard, written in ancient runes old enough to challenge even her. Harry inherited the first snitch he caught along with a frustratingly cryptic message, and the Sword of Gryffindor, which was still safely at Hogwarts. Ron got an interesting magical tool that could capture light and redistribute it. Hermione made a mental note to inspect it later and figure out how it worked, because it was utterly fascinating. It felt as if she was trapped between two different realities, sitting down with Harry and Ron to discuss possible routes and obscure locations one moment, the next she was helping Fleur with the dress fitting and feigned excitement about wedding dresses and cake options. She researched the theories of soul-splitting from dark books she had snatched from the library at Grimmauld Place, only to later open a magazine about makeup and hairstyle spells with Ginny an hour later. It was a fever dream, making it impossible for Hermione to truly enjoy the days leading up to the wedding, never mind the event itself. But she did her best to try and smile through the ceremony, to bask in the happy atmosphere, as everybody did their best to try to forget that this might be one of the last happy days for a long, long while— maybe even forever. And how it might be the last time they would see many of the faces surrounding them alive. As she watched Fleur and Bill dance, surrounded by other couples, both of them entirely lost in each other's eyes, her own began to sting. Don't think about it. Don't think about him, she told herself, to no avail, because whom else could she think about on an occasion such as this? Her right hand instinctively touched her left wrist, fiddling with the band of sparkling diamonds. 
a nervous habit that she had picked up just days after Draco had disappeared along with Professor Snape and a small number of Death Eaters. Harry and Ron asked about it once. Hermione had shrugged and muttered something about it having belonged to her grandmother, who had given it to her mother. The lie that she had kept it to remember her parents by had ceased all further questions. Her my own knee, someone said to her left, pronouncing it with the most charmingly familiar accent. It chased away the tears burning in her eyes, and for the first time in weeks, Hermione's smile felt genuine and effortless. Victor, she breathed and promptly pulled him into a tight hug. He chuckled into her hair, steadying her with the broad hands that felt familiar as they settled on her waist. I didn't know you would come. She had heard that he was invited, but there had been no answer. Of course I come. Bill and Fleur are good friends, and they told you would be here, he said, skipping words just like he had done during his time in Britain. It was still as endearing as it had been three years ago. Merlin, had it truly only been three years? It felt like an eternity. It's good to see you, Victor, Hermione said, pulling back to look at his face. He had outgrown his hair and beard, adding a sharp edge to his boyish charm. But his smile was still the same, and there was still a hint of shyness in his eyes as he allowed his gaze to roam over her in return. You still so beautiful, Hermione. His grin was infectious. Most beautiful witch of the evening. Don't let the bride hear that, she scolded playfully, but it didn't stop her from blushing under his compliment. Yes, her feelings for Victor were merely platonic, but he was a good-looking wizard and had been her first real relationship. She had a soft spot for him, and they had always kept in contact through letters. I will face duel for you, even Rasulka again. Maybe dragon. Victor's hand left her waist as it closed around her fingers again. But maybe you will dance before I anger the bride more. He raised her hand to his mouth, brushing a kiss against her knuckles only to freeze in surprise as he spotted the bracelet adorning her wrist. Or duel your betrothed. I did not know you were promised to be wed. Victor's heavy brow had twitched upwards as he inspected the innocent piece of jewelry. I don't have a betrothed, Hermione protested over the sudden ringing in her ears, because surely not. Voodoo. This is courtship bracelet. Very old, pure-blood tradition. It declares wizard intent to marry which he loves. It is promise and commitment. His thumb brushed over the black diamond in the center. And protection. This is powerful magic. Dark magic. It will keep you safe from many things. No, she cleared her throat. No, it, it wasn't meant like that. He didn't... I grown up with purebred customs. I know courtship jewelry. Victor's voice stumbled over the last word. Is he here tonight? His dark eyes flickered to the side, and when Hermione followed his gaze she noticed Ron watching them. No, no he's not, she said quietly, but insistently. Because she didn't need Victor thinking that she was in love with Ron as well. Never mind that they had some sort of agreement involving courtship bracelets. Good. Then no duel when we dance, he nodded, and Hermione smiled weakly. I would love to dance, she said, and allowed herself to be led to the dance floor. Settling her hand on his shoulder felt familiar, and they easily found their rhythm together. He was still a very good dancer, and carefully steered her around the other dancing couples, his eyes never leaving her. But as she held his gaze, she found herself thinking about another pair of eyes, in a shade of silver blue, framed by pale skin and fair hair. Betrothed. The words seemed to echo in her mind. Courtship bracelet. Intent to marry. 
Her heart began to drum against her ribs, fluttering in her chest as her thoughts buzzed like a fairy hive. Was this bracelet what Victor said it was? More than just protection. Had Draco, in his own suppressed, subtle, pure-blood way, proposed to her? Or at least made an unspoken promise, one she had accepted unknowingly? But if she had known the meaning that Victor ascribed to the bracelet, would she have still accepted it? Despite the mark branded on his arm, Merlin, she wasn't even eighteen yet, and although that meant she was of age in the wizarding world, marriage usually wasn't a topic that came up for most muggles at that age. It was one of those pure-blood things, undoubtedly. If Draco had been up front with her and not put a courtship bracelet on her in his Slytherin way that included simply not telling her about the meaning, would she have refused or accepted? What a ridiculous question. She already knew the answer. Hermione Granger, you can't be in love with a wizard you have barely spoken to. That rational voice in the back of her mind insisted, but like so many other times, her heart immediately silenced it. No, she was getting ahead of herself. For all she knew, Draco had merely given the bracelet to her because of the protective runes, and the fact that it was a sign of courtship hadn't been relevant to him. Surely he knew just as well as she did that there was no possibility of a happy ending for them. If his side prevailed, and all hope was lost, she would have to flee Britain and hide while desperately hoping that Voldemort wouldn't extend his power past Britain. If she was lucky enough to survive the war in the first place. If her side prevailed, Draco was facing a life sentence in Azkaban, if not something worse like the kiss. If he was still alive, that was. For all she knew, he might have already died, or would be one of the many soldiers Voldemort was more than willing to sacrifice. The image of him pale as a ghost with empty eyes, laying in a sprawled heap on the ground as all life left his body, had been a frequent appearance in her nightmares. Sometimes she found him when he was already dead. Other times she witnessed his death, unable to do anything to prevent it. Once she had been forced to kill him as he attacked her. She tried not to think about that particular dream. This wizard, are you in love with? Victor made her snap out of her dark thoughts, and Hermione could feel herself blush brightly. She wasn't able to answer his question, though, because she was terrified of saying it out loud to anybody other than Draco. And she had only voiced her feelings towards him on accident, while under the influence of a glass or two of champagne. But apparently, her blush was all the confirmation Victor needed, because his lips twitched into a small smile. Good. You deserve love. And I think he loves you very much. You can't know that, Hermione mumbled, but Victor shook his head decisively. I know. He gave you courtship bracelet, and you are Hermione Granger, beautiful and smart. Any wizard with sense fancy you, he proclaimed as if it were truly that easy. Hermione's heart swelled with fondness, and she promptly hugged him again, interrupting their dance. But Victor didn't seem to mind. He merely held her gently as she quietly thanked him. Merlin and Morgana, he really was a sweetheart. Hermione. Crumb. A voice interrupted them suddenly, and when Hermione pulled back, she saw Ron next to them, a well-disguised and apologetic-looking Harry by his side. The hint of jealousy in Ron's eyes made Hermione wince, since she had hoped that the hint of a crush he seemed to have on her had disappeared. Apparently, she had been wrong. Ron, she said tersely, entirely unimpressed by her two friends interrupting them, never mind the worry that they might have overheard them. She didn't need those two bringing up that bracelet again. Her friend ducked his head sheepishly, while Victor introduced himself to Harry, who shook his hand and introduced himself as Barney Weasley, a distant cousin. Victor didn't question it. 
Trying to get away from Ron's attentive gaze, Hermione muttered something about getting them drinks, which made Victor frown, and Hermione hid a smile about his chivalrous nature, and wove her way through the mingling guests. When she returned, carrying two glasses with champagne, it was to overhear Victor and Harry talking about Luna's father and the necklace he was wearing. Something about blood superiority that made Victor frown angrily. Hermione knew how much he disliked any notions of blood status, and firmly held the belief of equality, no matter the heritage, and soothingly put a hand on his shoulder. She was just about to reassure Victor that she had no issue with Xenophilius Lovegood being present, and support Harry's argument that he most likely didn't intend to wear a symbol of blood supremacy, when a hush fell over the tent. All lights went off, and then there was an orb of silver, and Shacklebolt's voice filled the eerily silent tent. The Ministry has fallen. Scrimjaw is dead. They are coming. And then chaos broke out. Guests were screaming, and the cracks of apparition filled the air. Through the crowd, she saw Arthur, who nodded his head at her. We need to leave, now, she said tightly, gripping her trusty beaded bag with shaking hands. Ron and Harry glanced at each other before they nodded. A flash of recognition sparked in Victor's eyes as he realized just who Barney Weasley was. But he didn't say anything. Instead, he merely kissed her cheek and whispered a quiet goodbye before he disapparated as well. It won't be the last time you see him, she told herself firmly, convinced that Victor would be safe on the mainland. Then she banished all thoughts about Victor, the Order, or the remaining Weasleys, and took Harry and Ron's arms. She focused, and there was a tug in her stomach as the world around them disappeared. She thought that the place she had picked was safe, far enough away from the burrow and deep enough in the Muggle world that nobody had followed them. Hermione was wrong. It was usually in the most dire situations. As she pointed her shaking wand at a stunned Dolohoff in the middle of a destroyed little diner, Hermione vowed to herself not to make such a careless mistake again. She would need to be more careful, far more careful, if she wanted Harry and Ron to survive this. And herself. Because while Ron and Harry hadn't noticed, she had very well realized that Dolohoff had been targeting her, and that none of his spells had been lethal but certainly nasty enough that they would leave her entirely helpless, should he have hit his target. And one almost had. Had it not been for the bracelet to suddenly flare to life, and deflect the spell faster than Hermione could raise her wand, neither Harry nor Ron had noticed, too occupied holding their own against the unnamed Death Eater. Hermione swallowed tightly as she performed yet another memory spell. As Obliviate fell from her lips, she fought the desire to go as deep as possible into Dolohov's mind, to erase every trace of her from his thoughts, every dark desire and every despicable obsession. But she couldn't. It would give too much away, and risk exposing just how well-versed she was in taking memories. No, she had to limit it to this one encounter, and pray to Circe that he never got close to her again. Hermione had thought that now that she wouldn't return to Hogwarts for her last year, she was no longer in danger of breaking every possible rule there was. A mistake, because she found herself once again brewing Polyjuice Potion. But this time, instead of merely breaking into the Slytherin common room, she did it with the intent of breaking into the Ministry of Magic, because Umbridge had somehow gotten her grubby claws on the Slytherin locket. She briefly wondered whether or not this ranked higher than keeping Rita Skeeter in a jar— on her list of things that would get her thrown into Azkaban, and then decided that she was better off not knowing. Still, her lips twisted into displeasure when she encountered Umbridge and had to follow the pink menace as her bloody assistant of all things. How Hermione resisted the urge to cast a spell to imitate horse noises, 
just to see if Umbridge remembered her encounter with the centaurs as much as she did. Hermione didn't know. But she considered it a show of character strength that she had stood above it. Still, the undiluted satisfaction when Harry confronted Umbridge, and the way the old cow paled at being face to face with the undesirable number one, made even their daring escape exhilarating rather than terrifying. That was, until she had to apparate twice in rapid succession while trying to throw their pursuers off their trail. Because then she splinched Ron. His arm was mangled with deep cuts that oozed blood, clean slices through his muscles and deep enough for her to see. No. Swallowing down bile, Hermione ordered Harry to search for the stash of Dittany in her purse. As the clear potion sipped into Ron's wounds, knitting his arm back together, she brushed her tears away and forced herself to think rationally. She had enough Dittany in her purse to last them for weeks, months even. She had packed Bezoar as well, just in case of another encounter with Nagini, and there was enough food wrapped in stasis spells to last them for weeks. They would be fine. At least that was what she told herself day after day, while using Scourgeify on herself and her clothes, until even magic didn't make her feel clean anymore. She longed for a hot shower and enough soap to rub her skin pink and raw. Every so often, she quietly thanked Madame Pomfrey for the contraception spell, because having her period and relying on female hygiene products was an inconvenience she didn't need while on the run from Death Eaters. But gradually, things shifted. The influence of Voldemort's locket brought out the worst in all of them. Despite sharing the burden of carrying it, Harry got more and more indecisive. Ron's short temper and tendency to whine grew, and Hermione felt herself become more shrill and controlling. But despite being aware of it, she couldn't help it. It delved into their minds, twisting dreams, fears, and desires as they tried to find a way to destroy it. The lack of progress and the influence of the Horcrux was wearing them down. She tried to combat it with the silencing spells and fleeing into books, but it didn't help. The presence of her best friends wore her down, and she worried that things would never be the same as before. It made her even more controlling, and then... Then she wore the locket during her sleep, and inevitably allowed it to glance into her mind. The bearable situation became unbearable as it began to whisper to her in her dreams. Small things at first, things that made her dreams pleasant. No longer that she was watching Draco die, no, she was fighting with him. Shapeless figures, shadows with grotesque faces and distorted voices. Death Eaters, no doubt. Loyal followers of Voldemort. She protected him, and for the first time in months, he survived. But then, one night, one of those figures wore a familiar face as it cast the killing curse at her. A face filled with rage and betrayal and hatred. She had never seen Lupin like that, not even when he had faced Peter Pettigrew, knowing he had betrayed Harry's parents and led to their deaths. But he was staring at her as he shouted, Avana Kedavra! The flash of green light targeted her, and then there was Draco who pushed her aside. The dream repeated itself, replacing Lupin with another member of the Order. And yet they escaped unscathed. Until one night, Draco pushed her out of the way, only to be hit by it instead. She watched herself cry out, reaching for his lifeless body, before she suddenly grabbed her wand and repeated the spell, aiming at McGonagall. Hermione had woke up crying, screaming, only saved from the onslaught of questions due to the silencing spell surrounding her bed. The Horcrux then changed approaches. Following the discovery of her horror at the thought of harming those she considered her friends, even as her life was in danger. Instead, it began to twist her dreams into something pleasant, but only on the surface. 
There was always a trace of darkness there, a hint of something that made her skin crawl. Only it was so subtle that she almost forgot about it before she woke up again. Hermione was walking through a large garden. Draco was at her side, their clasped hands swinging loosely between them. She laughed light and carefree as he made a dry remark. It was spring, the flowers were in full bloom, and the scent of thousands of blossoms filled the air. Draco looked good, healthy and whole, shadows no longer clouding his eyes. "'I love you,' he murmured, raising her hand to his mouth to press a kiss to her fingers. Hermione flinched when she spotted the dark mark on her arm, identical to his, twisting and turning and moving under her skin. She was sitting on a large terrace, drinking tea out of bone china, as she watched white peacocks flocking in the distance. The summer sun was tickling her face, making her bracelet sparkle. It matched the ring on her left hand, equal parts ancient and extravagant. Everything was peaceful, undisturbed. And then there was a crack of apparition as Draco appeared. He was dressed in black, taking off the silver mask as he approached her. A Death Eater uniform. But Hermione didn't startle. Instead, she put down her cup and reached for him. He smiled as he brushed a kiss against her lips, which she eagerly returned. Chuckling to himself, Draco knelt before her, putting one hand on the swell of her stomach that hadn't been there before. The Dark Lord is very pleased with us, my darling wife. She was wearing a long dress, emerald green, and adorned with countless gemstones. Walking down a long corridor, she stepped into a study. Music and chattering were coming from downstairs, but she barely noticed it over the pearls of laughter echoing from the tall bookshelves. In the center of the room stood Draco. He looked a bit older than she remembered, more mature. A hint of lines around his eyes. He was clad in traditional festive robes, but Hermione barely noticed it over the bright smile on his face. In his arms he was holding a toddler, bright blonde hair and silver-blue eyes, deep dimples and pink cheeks. Mommy! The child giggled upon seeing her, reaching for her with small, chubby arms. I thought bedtime was in half an hour ago. We shouldn't keep our guests waiting, Hermione scolded, but she was smiling as she approached them, kissing first the little boy's forehead before she kissed her husband. When Draco adjusted the way he held their son, the small sigil pinned to the boy's jumper caught her eye. In the center of the Malfoy crest was a dark snake, twisting around a black skull. Declaration of Loyalty. The next generation of Death Eaters for their Dark Lord. Hermione stood in an unfamiliar room, tall and grand, with dark wooden floors and heavy chandeliers. She was holding an unfamiliar wand as an equally unfamiliar incantation split from her tongue. Her magic flared up and unleashed, burning brighter than it ever had before. She panted from excitement and exhaustion when someone began to clap. Very good. A silky, hoarse voice hissed. You improve fast. Not long until you have unlocked your full potential. She didn't even flinch upon seeing those blood-red eyes. The locket continued to try and lure her. It made promises, whispering assurances into her ears when Harry and Ron were asleep. If only she would return it to its master, she would be allowed a place amongst his followers— she would be granted access to magic beyond her comprehension, as Voldemort would reward her for her act of service by sharing some of his seemingly infinite knowledge. And she would be reunited with Draco. They could be together. Life would be so easy. No longer running and hiding. 
no longer being afraid. She would have everything her heart desired and more. It would be so easy. And wasn't she so tired of hiding and running and fearing for her life? She only needed to whisper one word. One simple word and the war would be over. One simple word and she would have peace. Sometimes she could taste the word on the tip of her tongue before she violently swallowed it back down. She wouldn't break. She wouldn't. Even if she sometimes felt like she was already fractured and barely held together. One day, while she told Ron and Harry that she would be checking the wards, she moved away from their camp as fast as she could. Clutching the locket tightly, she felt her magic tingle. Destination, Malfoy Manor. No, she had never been there. She wasn't even sure where it was, other than Wiltshire. Hogwarts? Snape was headmaster, as far as she knew, and one of Voldemort's most trusted followers. Yes, Hogwarts. But with the wards up, she would have to apparate to the gates. Yes. Determination. Yes. She wanted the end of the war. She wanted everything to be over. She was so tired of fighting. And the future could be so promising. She wanted to go back to Hogwarts. Deliberation. She had made up her mind. She knew the risks, but also the reward. There was no hope left, no chance to turn everything around. And she needed to think about herself for once. She couldn't just live for other people, sacrifice herself for Ron and Harry. Ron, Harry! The tugging sensation in her stomach disappeared as Hermione reined her magic back under control. She ripped the locket off her neck and threw it as far away as she could. Gasping for air, her hands shook as she ran them over her face, wiping away the tears before touching her neck. She could still feel the lingering weight of the locket and needed it to go away. Get off, 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 off! Her mind screamed at her before she could truly shatter, before Voldemort's horcrux could corrupt her mind. Merlin, she had been about to. Hermione doubled over, clasping a hand over her mouth to fight the urge to gag. She had almost betrayed her friends. She had almost given in to the weeks of dreams and promises. She had almost. She knelt on the forest floor until she no longer felt as if she were about to be sick, until her stomach stopped cramping and the tears subsided. Eventually, Hermione got back on her feet. She picked up the locket with still trembling fingers and returned to their tent, where Harry and Ron were sitting quietly on their beds. I need a break, she whispered, fearing her voice would otherwise break. Ron and Harry exchanged a glance, and then Ron took it. And Hermione suddenly felt like she had made another mistake. She had. A few days later, days during which Ron and Harry shared the burden, there was finally a hint of good news, or, rather, news that helped put her brain in the right direction. They came across a trio of goblins who had heard of students attempting to steal the Sword of Gryffindor, the sword Harry had inherited from Albus Dumbledore, a sword made out of goblin steel. That evening, Hermione came to a startling realization. Goblin steel only used what made it stronger, and Harry had used it to slay the basilisk before he had destroyed Tom Riddle's diary with basilisk venom. The sword would be able to destroy all the remaining horcruxes. You're a genius, Harry laughed as she told him, pulling her into a tight hug. A spark of hope had returned to his eyes, when she shared. Finally, they were one step closer to a solution. Finally, they could continue with their plans. Only to be confronted by Ron, who had been wearing the locket for too long. But instead of trying to lure him with the promise of love and knowledge, it had played into his insecurities. And so Hermione watched as the fabricated hardness in his eyes won. 
watched as he threw the locket at them before he turned around, hurling scathing words in their direction, until the crack of apparition silenced him. And for the first time, Hermione was relieved that she wasn't in love with Ronald Weasley, because no matter what came, no matter what he did, she would never be able to trust him again. Not like she had before, even though she knew that deep down the locket had made him leave, and not his lack of loyalty. Ron's absence was notable. Sharing the burden of the locket with Harry alone made even more taxing. A heavy silence settled over the camp, one that had previously been broken by Ron's chatter, cheerful even when his mood was dampened, but there was none of that now, only the radio. It informed them daily about casualties, about Voldemort's progress, and how the light was slowly dying. It left them feeling helpless and hopeless, and Hermione had taken to sleeping as little as possible, afraid she would wake up and Harry would be gone. It was unfair because she knew how deep Harry's loyalty ran, and then her mind whispered that Ron was also loyal, and yet. There was rarely any music, but then, one evening, as Hermione sat next to the radio, fiddling with her bracelet as the constant rain and loneliness weighed on her mind, the radio acted up again and changed channels. Music filled the tent. It wasn't a very uplifting song, nor a particularly popular one, but that didn't deter Harry. I never asked you to dance at the Yule Ball, and I missed my chance at Bill and Fleur's wedding. He smiled and held out his hand. This might be my opportunity. Hermione stared at his hand for a second. Then a small snort escaped her. Only took you three years and a war to realize that I'm a girl after all, she murmured softly, but allowed him to pull her to his feet. Better late than never, Harry quipped as he led her towards the center of their dreary tent. And although dancing was the last thing on her mind, Hermione went along with him, copying his movements. It wasn't very elegant. There was no finesse behind it, but there was no need for it either. It's a good thing McGonagall isn't here to see us. She would make me take lessons again, bloody war or not, her best friend muttered as he accidentally stepped on her toes, and for the first time in a small eternity, Hermione laughed. It was brittle and a little broken, but wasn't she as well? Weren't they all? You, Harry Potter, are a marvel, she told him seriously and delighted in the slightly pink tint that spread across his hollow cheeks. Only because of you, Hermione Granger. I don't know if I would have survived my first year at Hogwarts without you. Never mind until now. And I feel very honored to call myself your friend. He muttered back, and she knew that he was forcing himself not to think about Ron, because she was also forcing herself not to think about the missing member of their trio. And she almost failed, but then Harry boldly spun her around before he dipped her, and Hermione squeaked in surprise, holding on to his shoulders as he put her upright again. It derailed after that until they weren't moving to the music anymore, but to their laughter, and Hermione was convinced that a poised, pure-blood witch like Minerva McGonagall would never be caught dancing like this. But Hermione didn't care. Not when she felt lighter and more carefree than she had in months. Not when it finally felt easy to smile as they slowly swayed in small circles. Her head was resting on Harry's shoulder, and his hand warm where it held hers. And for a moment, she was able to forget about the war, and the fear of waking up to the news of the death of a friend. Until Harry's fingers brushed against the bracelet she was still wearing. She stiffened instinctively, and her heart seized when Harry cleared his throat. Uh, Victor said something, at the wedding. He mumbled into her hair. Well, he asked me a question, and I've been thinking about it for a while. He wanted to know who gave this to you. 
when Hermione didn't say anything, Harry continued. He told me it was a courtship bracelet, that they're an old tradition that almost died out, but it means a lot in certain circles, especially to really old and traditional families. Harry, Hermione began, only for her voice to die when Harry pulled back and met her eyes. There was a certainty in them that told her he already knew. You didn't get this bracelet from your parents, did you, Hermione? It wasn't a question. 